Celebrate the 100th anniversary of Columbia Pictures and explore the entire Sony Pictures Entertainment Library of movies and TV shows with unique deals, bundles, gift sets, and much more throughout 2024. From Lawrence of Arabia to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, from It Happened One Night to Whiplash, from The Jeffersons to Breaking Bad. Engage with Sony Pictures Home Entertainment and share your favourite moments, memorable quotes and milestone movies from the studio's library on social media at Sony Pictures. Plus, check out the top 100 Sony Pictures letterbox list, which you can find on the Sony Pictures HQ page. This week on Best in Show, we're at the BAFTAs with London editor Ella Kemp and we find out what we were made for with Billie Eilish and Phineas. Hello, 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 and welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Levicino, the West Coast editor here at Letterboxd, and Best in Show is all about awards season. We meet contenders from this year's movies, interrogate insiders about the film ecosystem, and we look into that Letterboxd data, of course, but hey, mostly we do what we always do here at Letterboxd, celebrate cinema. And joining me to celebrate cinema are my best in-show besties, Hollywood veteran and our superstar editorial producer, Brian Formo. Good morning. <laughs> and our superstar London editor, Ella Kemp. Good afternoon. Okay, y'all. It was the BAFTAs. We're going to do a quick, quick BAFTA recap, and then I'm going to let Ella take it away because she was actually there. There was an explosion of Oppenheimer wins. As expected, to be honest, the awards season frontrunner snagged seven major trophies, including, but not limited to, Best Film, Best Director, and Best Actor for the Killian Murphy. To the Best Actor mention, Killian Murphy is, I mean, I think we should do the whole podcast about him, to be honest, but because we're not allowed to do that, I will just keep it brief. Uh, Killian Murphy was the first Irish-born performer to win the Best Actor at BAFTA. Now, the reason that this is a big deal is, uh, first of all, the second I said that sentence, I thought about the press junket for Inception. Who, whoever <gasps> forgets that press junket? I can never forget that. Exactly. During that press junket, Killian does an interview paired with Tom Hardy and a journalist. I sincerely do not know who they are, so I'm not even trying to be like aloof. They just go like, Oh, and to the pair of you who are both British, and Killian goes, Irish. And the journalist goes, yeah, British. And Killian goes, no, I'm Irish. And I kind of feel like that sums up what BAFTA is <laughs> and and why this is such a distinctive win because, uh, you know, folks love to conflate British and Irish and they are simply two different things, two different places, two different types of people. Uh, you know, it's like if you're in the US and you've got Killian Murphy is from... Toronto and Tom Hardy is from New York and you're like so Americans you know it's kind of it's not that and I don't want to get cancelled anywhere for saying that but it's that but yeah BAFTA can and should acknowledge the differences I also found it quite funny because last year the Banshees of Inisherin, Martin McDonough's film won several BAFTAs including Outstanding British Film which is funny considering how Irish it is Shout out to the British funders of that film. But, um, you know, same thing. So many of this hemisphere's greatest talents, rising talents, uh, long-term, lifelong talents, 
are Irish. So I think it's long, long, long overdue to both distinguish that and for BAFTA to celebrate it. Oh, yes. And we will be celebrating another Irish actor a little bit later in the episode. Stick around for that. If you happen to be a fan of um, Paul Meskel, I don't know. I don't know. But in the meantime, we're still reporting. We're still doing the news. My beautiful, messed up Franken baby, poor things, also fared well. Emma Stone won Best Actress, and I was happy to be able to fully root for her because for some reason Lily Gladstone was not nominated. Um, I don't know. <laughs> and I know we have covered that before, but I'm just saying it again. WTF, WTF, WTF. Um, but anyway, poor things. Yorgos's beautiful textured world building also won production design, costume design, and best makeup. So perhaps it's time to have a little re-listen to our previous Best in Show episode, interviewing the now BAFTA-winning production designers, James Price and Shona Heath. Hmm? Huh? <laughs> little plug there? I don't know. I was very proud of that interview. So I really, that is a genuine plug. Please listen to it. I, I love it. Mia, I cannot tell you how many times on the night I mentioned it to everyone in the winner's room and on the carpet. Everyone was being like, do you want to talk to the production designers? I was like, I would if my colleague Mia Levicino hadn't done it already. And everyone was like, oh my God, how cool. And I was like, do you listen to the Letterbox show? Best in show. Yes, plugging at the BAFTAs. Ella, that's why you are a superstar reporter. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to back up to those Oppenheimer uh, wins, which we made a little bit, a little bit shorter for time. But our our other our bestie Jennifer Lame, uh, she won best editing as well. So mm-hmm, that's right. Love chatting with her. But um, okay, so <laughs> as I'm going to be doing throughout this podcast record, I'm going to use the BAFTAs as a way to kind of like bring in the Oscars a little bit because you know news, news, <laughs> news. But the BAFTAs started the best casting award in 2019, and the first recipient for that was Shayna Markowitz for Joker. The Oscars just announced that they're going to introduce that category to the Academy Awards in 2026 for 2025 Woo! films. Um, this year at the BAFTAs, Susan Shopmaker won for The Holdovers. Uh, she was also the casting director on The Iron Claw last year, which, you know, Letterboxd loved. She's uh, cast each and every Sean Durkin movie going back to Martha Marcy May Marlene. She has a very interesting filmography, to be honest. I was, uh, I was, I spent a little bit too much of the prep time just looking through all of her movies. The Sound of Metal was another one. A lot of Paul Schrader films. She's very Northeast U.S. specific. Uh, she did a wonderful job on The Holdovers, which was obviously Massachusetts. Uh, Dominic Sessa discovered, obviously, there. Yes, King. Yeah, all the Holdover boys. Uh, Darby Lily Lee Stack, who was the Cess of Finger Paints with in Carrie Preston's house. But I, I just wanted to shout that out because it's it's the type of film that should be winning casting awards. Um, some regional finds, some veteran day players who aren't instantly recognizable. Uh, Paul Giamatti said after Cess's audition, not only was he great, but he looked like he walked out from the 1970s in that audition. Anyway, that is plugging the Oscars are eventually going to do that, but also... Something the Oscars are eventually going to do as well is probably award Davine Joy Randolph. She also won a BAFTA. She picked up Best Supporting Actress, which she's been sweeping pretty much everywhere. And Ella, you got us a cool soundbite about her connection to the UK specifically. So I started um, on the West End in a musical called Ghost the Musical. Even prior to that, uh, my education, I studied at the British Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, with the Oxford campus, and we would come in on the weekends and see plays. Actually, I saw 
which changed my life, War Horse at the National Theater. That was around the time that I was here. And I thought it was so amazing, so much so, that was my summer of my first year of school, that I called the school and I said, I'm not coming back. I want to stay here. I want to learn theater here. And I didn't know Shakespeare. And so that's why I wanted to go to that program. So you guys taught me the classics and I'm obsessed with Pinter and all that stuff. It's unbelievable because at that time, the only thing that I thought maybe if I could possibly get nominated for would be an Olivier. So to imagine it be this is it's very moving. What, what I loved about Davine, you know, shouting out London and having this connection to the UK, I didn't ask that. None of us asked that. She was just like, thanks so much, guys. Let me tell you a story about why we're all here. And, you know, we are blessed that she is here with us for that. While in the winner's room, I also asked Davide what she wished might, could, should be different about the film industry and like the way that all of us go to the cinema and the way that movies themselves make their way to the cinema. And I started this by acknowledging that The Holdovers was released over like four different months between the US and the UK. Whole holidays happened in between. Uh, You know, we only got it in the UK like three weeks after Christmas, which is... It's just quite funny. And uh, all she cares about in her answer was that we keep watching, you know, that we keep going to the cinema and to be honest, watching films at home in whatever form that takes. And I loved that. But she did also acknowledge that a post-holiday release here in the UK was, and I quote, bollocks. So true, Queen. I, di- I didn't make her say that. So that was great. Um, <laughs> make her say it. <laughs> say the best British swear word ever. No, she loved it. She was she was all the way in. A true London icon already. Um, another British icon who I'm so glad we had in the winner's room and on stage and at the BAFTAs and to be honest, dominated the night as she should is Samantha Morton. The veteran actor who I truly believe is one of the few and maybe last remaining people in the UK slash the entire film industry to speak her mind all of the time and to always do so extremely eloquently and powerfully and sensitively and kind of perfectly. Um, She gave us such a great quote about how change in the industry, specifically in the British film industry, can be good, but how it's kind of got to come from people's pockets. I'll let you listen. Well, no, we are in times of change and that's okay. We need more investment in British cinema. And I've been saying this for years because we can't just be a service industry for the wonderful Americans. They are amazing and thank God they come here and make movies and put us in them as well. Thank you. But we need, like in France, we need our own quotas and we need to be making you know, those investments. But if, if our government only gives us a, a culture and sport minister rather than separating that and identifying that what we do, all of us uh, in the creative arts, it's a billion, billion dollar industry. And it's foolish of them to not understand that. So we need more investment in schools. We need education. We need books in our schools again. We need drama teachers. So it really is grassroots, you know, for people to believe that there's an opportunity for them to pursue a career in in film and media, TV, music. I I, I, I do want to okay, now we're saying like bollocks is a great swear word, but let's go back to Irish. I mean, feckin' is great. Feckin' is I feckin' better uh, than bollocks. Can we agree? Or is that going to cause controversy? We- I think we can agree on it, but I think that I I would just have to leave like this country, this continent, if I dared to try and include it in my vocabulary because my accent is, we all know what my accent is. I'm not doing, I wish it was more interesting than this, but um, no, I'm going to leave that to our sweet friends in Ireland. 
Um, also, shout out to team member Josh over in Ireland, who is the person you can all thank for all of the BAFTAs clips coming your way on the night. So, you know, the UK and Ireland can be friends. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. And Ella, you were not just in the winner's room for post-BAFTA interviews. You were also on the feckin' red carpet. So, Ella, my beautiful... I keep saying beautiful. I'm sorry. I'm calling her beautiful. Do it. Do it. My star reporter, please set the scene. All right. Now, long-term Best in Show listeners might have heard me complaining about my BAFTA carpet experience last year. And that is not BAFTA's fault. Many, many reasons would have led to us being in what they once called the social cluster, which was me and two phones and one suit and not much access to any of our favorite besties. This year was different, I'm pleased to say. Um, Shout out to Tom, who was filming all of the red carpet interviews beautifully for us. And shout shout out to our besties at MTV UK, who caught the stunning moment, I'm skipping ahead to this, uh, who caught the stunning moment when Paul Meskell sprinted, ran to the letterbox microphone, and, uh, you know, fangirled over us. Why lie? He squealed. Anyway. He squealed. He squealed. I think he squealed. We all saw the footage. So... We did. It's on the internet. Um, but yeah, but so the BAFTAs, it, it's a strange sort of maze of a place in terms of the carpet where I literally couldn't tell you where stars arrive. <laughs> I know where I was and suddenly people like appeared in front of you and then disappeared and sometimes reappeared. It was kind of like a sort of a maze where you'd start your interviewed by the BBC themselves and then BAFTA themselves and then the broadcast outlets themselves. And then you can go around and maybe come back around to Letterboxd and all your other favourites. And then there's a whole fashion area. And then I do think from what I saw that the fan area was massive this year. So if anyone was there, like let us know what it was like, how long it was, um, because good for you. Good for you. Run, run the whole ship. So, um, yeah, it was pretty hard to sort of predict who was going to come our way. Like uh, much of the evening was Tom saying, oh my God, there's Paul Giamatti. Oh my God, there's Margot Robbie. And I literally couldn't see anyone. And I was like, oh, maybe they'll come back. And then suddenly like Teo Yu is in front of you and Dominic Sessa walks past. So, you know, standard carpet fare, but um, sort of like Saltburn maze vibes for this one specifically. Tom is very tall. I've seen pictures. <laughs> He is like, and he'd be like, why can't you see this person? And I'm like, because you're six foot one and I'm five foot two. I don't know how those measurements translate, but I'm not very tall is what it translates to. I, so much of the carpet experience is just like being on your tippy toes looking. Honestly, I just, oh, I looked. People are like, did you have fun? Yeah. I'm like, I looked, I looked, yeah. I saw some yeah. stuff. The gaze. Honestly, but we did talk to some people. We spoke to Paul Meskel, out of breath, happy to see us. That was great. We also spoke to the completely legendary British filmmaker Ken Loach who was nominated for Outstanding British Film for The Old Oak which may well be his last film so I was very very happy for him to stop and chat to us about the communal cinematic experience and why and how it must be saved and preserved. We also spoke to very good boys uh, Himesh Patel who was presenting an award on the night and recently starred in Dan Levy's Good Grief on Netflix and Teo Yu the star of Past Lives, who was nominated for Best Actor, which like I, I kind of think was a bit of a surprise, more because of the way that BAFTA usually goes, not because of his performance, which is gorgeous. So um, that was nice. And um, and yeah, and then Team How to Have Sex, we will never not talk to them. We love you. Shout out to Molly Manning-Walker and EE Rising Star winner Mia McKenna-Bruce. Yeah. And also, we love her. And we mm-hmm. also love... 
so much the zone of interest uh, i was very very happy to talk to the film's producers about what makes for a really good producer director relationship and then uh i mean we'll get on to what they want but uh their wins were interesting speaking of what bafta normally does screenplay was actually very interesting to me this year where nothing British won first uh, Anatomy of a Fall won best original screenplay, which was my sneaky prediction for Oscar. But if it's winning BAFTA, it might not make it so sneaky after all. I should have placed a bet in Vegas far earlier. Um, but then also American Fiction won best supporting uh, best supporting American Fiction won best adapted screenplay. Did either of those surprise you, Ella? Because like art Baptists generally very, very favoring of their own industry in these categories. I mean, BAFTA love to be, but like things are changing. And also with my letterboxed hat on, it didn't really surprise me at all because as, you know, all of us here have seen in the last few months, the community loves them. And when is the community ever wrong, to be honest? And also, I mean, BAFTA's been going chaotic for the last couple of years. Like just look at last year where All Quiet on the Western Front swept, including in screenplay category. And again, The Banshees of Inisherin, that pretty much Irish film, also won the other screenplay award. So it's a bit like, I think BAFTA wants to say that they're very proud of British talent. And don't get me wrong, we do have great British talent. But um, also, just for the record, I want to say I was in the winner's room and they're about to announce American Fiction. And I turned to Claire from MTV and I was like, it's going to be American Fiction. I need to just like, do you want me to do this for the Oscars so that you can win your bets? Because like, I'm I'm free that night. You're just like <laughs> Madame Webb. It's true. It's me. <laughs> Similarly to the sort of humour found in The Banshees of Inisherin winning the award for Outstanding British Film last year, it was great to see the zone of interest, as I will keep saying, pick up so many awards. I didn't really have any doubt on that, but it was quite, well, I mean, fun's the wrong word, but it was interesting when the zone of interest won for Outstanding British Film and also Film Not in the English Language on the same night. And it's like, that is technically possible. Both things can be true. The film is not spoken in English. Jonathan Glazer, I mean, is the greatest thing the UK has ever produced as a filmmaker. And, you know, the film was produced and financed by Film 4, who also uh, who also financed and made Poor Things and Occupied City and All of Us Strangers. So, like, you know, it is a British film, but it's just, you know, it's quite interesting how these technicalities work. I also thought it was a little bit funny how Past Lies was nominated for film not in the English language as well, considering they certainly speak a lot of English in that film. This was like the one time I was hoping for it to not win something. Honestly, there are so many technicalities within the BAFTA ceremony, but it was also validating to hear that Paul Meskel, one of our besties who we spoke to before the ceremony with all of the strange technicalities, Paul Meskel, who may well co-host this podcast at this point in time, considering how many times we've spoken to him, named the zone of interest in a wonderfully chaotic hybrid for more faves slash last fall watch slash just name any kind of movies you want. And once he finished naming movies, he also told us about meeting Sandra Hula a couple of days prior. And I paraphrase and quote, melted into the ground. Have a listen. I saw, I've rewatched Anatomy of Falls. Anatomy of Falls, zone of interest. Sandra Hula, fucking, sorry. For the win, great. I, I met Sandra last night. What did you say? She, no, because I, I, she came over and she was like, Paul, we can't, I can't talk to you. And I was like, I, can we, like it was very like hand-holding and being like, let's talk tomorrow. And I wanted the ground to like 
swallow me up. That's something that I always love to ask actors, and maybe we don't do it enough, but I love when actors geek out at these things about meeting other actors and being very shy about it and looking for them in a room full of other famous people. They're just like us. It's so good. And another person on the night who completely coincidentally shouted out Sandra Hula was... Society of the Snow star Enzo Vogrinchit, who had a fabulous four faves, which you can hear at some point. And he also mentioned how much he loved Anatomy of a Fool. So I asked if he'd met Sandra and he kind of got like a little smile on his face. And he was like, well, I kind of did, but I didn't. But I did because we shared a balcony in LA. So this guy in his first award season, swanning around, coming out onto his balcony in LA and Sandra Hula is just there. What what a nice <sighs> life. What? Well, okay, I may I may not have met Sandra yet, yet, but I did meet Messi, aka Snoop the dog from Anatomy of a Fall. I met him on Valentine's Day. He was my Valentine, and I have never owned a dog before, so I'm always a little bit awkward with them and pet them like they're cats, but it was so natural with him. He's the best boy in the whole world. <laughs> I looked into his piercing baby blue eyes and I saw the face of God. <laughs> Messi was not my Valentine's uh, date, but I did meet Messi uh, two days prior, and I also got lost in those blue eyes. But so, okay, so that was at the Oscars luncheon. Messi has apparently caused a little bit of controversy at the Oscar luncheon. You wouldn't you wouldn't know it from from Instagram feeds, but uh, <gasps> according to Puck News, which is what? one of my favorite insidery newsletters. There are a lot of people who are very upset about how present Messi was at the Oscars luncheon behind everyone's interviews, reminding people about Anatomy of a Fall, campaigning and behind other people's campaigning. Oh, the <laughs> the dogs are barking about about this. They think <laughs> they think that uh, they think that uh, that Messi shouldn't have been allowed to be at the luncheon. Another thing that some people, according to Puck News, are a little upset about is the Barbie promo with Jimmy Kimmel that we talked about last week. That's more valid, I'll say. Uh, you know, the Oscars are trying to get people to watch this year. They're trying; they have popular films, and they did reference every film that is in it. But you know, that is was basically a giant campaign spot that kind of helped Warner Brothers with the with their you must vote for us where we're there because we're not there in Best Director. The BAFTAs, Ella, who were the non-nominated mascots? Well, I think I'll find they were nominated. It is the chickens from Chicken Run 2, Dawn of the Nugget. They were simply on the carpet. Okay, you know, <gasps> I'm sure you will remember when we definitely did get their four faves and not just put a very giant microphone in their faces at the world premiere at London Film Festival. And, you know, and it was just amazing uh, as... We had the absolute just icons, you know, Peter Lord, who directed the original Chicken Run film, literally just like readjusting like Rocky's tail, like in front of me, where they're just hanging out pre-BAFTA. So um, shout out to the chickens. No controversies as far as I'm aware. Oh, shout out to those chickens. You know, I'm constantly shouting out those chickens. And you know what, Ella? Thank you so, so, so much for providing this wonderful BAFTA wrap-up. And I know you were very, very tired from that weekend. So we will we will excuse you, you know, to go talk to Adam Sandler and Paul Dano for Spaceman in a couple of minutes. So we'll put you into that Sandman orbit. But, you know, as you were mentioning the chickens, will you come back for our segment, Winner, Winner, Chicken, Run, Dinner? 
I wouldn't miss it for the world. Yes. Something the BAFTAs do not award, but the Oscars do, is Best Original Song. And it's not like the Best Casting Award that Brian brought up as new for BAFTA and coming to the Oscars. The Academy has been giving out Best Original Song every year since 1934. So Billie Eilish and Phineas have already won an Oscar for No Time to Die, the theme from, get this, No Time to Die. And they are up for another one this year for Barbie with the track, What Was I Made For? What was I made for? You know, not all the best original song winners and nominees actually chart on the Billboard Hot 100, but what was I made for peaked at 14. That's pretty that's pretty hot. It's pretty hot, right? Yeah, I mean it also won Song of the Year at the Grammys. Oh, uh, but we're ju- I just I'm just looking at charts. Okay, we're just looking at charts. We're just looking at charts. I'm just looking at charts uh just looking at pop hits and so I I did some research. <laughs> 16 of the Oscar-winning songs have also topped, been number one on the Billboard charts. My Heart Will Go On from Titanic (gasps) has the distinction of being the only Oscar original song winning hit to debut at number one. I was actually shocked that it only lasted for a week because it felt like that, like the movie was just number one for forever, but it was just a single week. I want to ask you, Mia, what do you think? Best original song, Oscar winners, has the most consecutive weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Do you have any guesses? I don't know. Frozen, Let It Go. That didn't even make it to number one. This was actually really fascinating research there. Uh, uh, Do you want a hint? Yes. Give me a hint. Give me a hint. His palms are sweaty. Knees weak, <gasps> arms are heavy. Oh my They're God, vomit lose on yourself. Sweater. <laughs> yeah, from 8 Mile Eminem. In the 12. Moment. <laughs> Do you remember when he performed that at the Oscars a couple years ago? I think that was the yes. Parasite year. He was like the surprise guest and he came out. That makes more sense knowing how hot that song was. 12 weeks, number one. It makes sense all around. You know, they play it at sporting events and stuff. It, you know, it was a huge hit, but there are a lot of, a lot of huge hits. I mean... Uh, the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing. Uh, Footloose, What a Feeling from Footloose. I mean, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, they hit number one for A Star is Born, but it's just a single week. Lose Yourself. It's the only one to hit double digits, number one. Wow. Okay, and with that, here it is, everyone. The interview you have been waiting for. I got to chat with chart-topping Billie Eilish and Phineas about a plethora of topics, but perhaps my favorite was when we queened out over how much we all love Andrew Scott. Um, Billie's song, You Should See Me in a Crown, was actually inspired by a line his character Moriarty in BBC Sherlock, which was why I felt safe bringing him up. And also, Andrew and Billie, both nominated for the Indie Spirits this weekend, and both in acting categories no less billy is nominated for her work in swarm so we talked about how surreal that feels for her as well as of course what was i made for from barbie have a listen the first question that we always like to ask our guests is what was the first award or prize or ribbon that you ever won and for what it does not have to be for music Wow. Great question. Um, the first one I think that I won, I was a, I used to do gymnastics for years and I was, I used to go to this place called the little gym and it's like a kid's gymnastics place. And I was so passionate about it. And you would get like a, a medal at the end of, I don't even know if it was like the end of the year or the month or something, but they would 
give us all medals. And I had so many of them and I kept them on this like little hook in my room. And I love, oh my God, I loved them so much. I kept them like they were diamonds. I was, I was so proud of my, my gymnastics ribbons and I have them somewhere. I have like a bunch of these little, these little medals. Um, but yeah, those, I think those were the first ones. What about you, Phineas? It was, uh, I did a kid's karate class when I was like six or seven or something. And they gave like a kid each week, a little special headband or something. Um, and I was, that was, uh, yeah, that unfortunately that became my sole focus in the karate class. As soon as I had acquired the headband, I just was trying to acquire the karate headband every week, which is the wrong, you should be a karate to learn karate. But that was the first talisman I'd been given. Yeah. This is amazing because my first award was gymnastics and my brother's first award was Taekwondo. So we're kind of all the same thing. That's beautiful. That's harmony. Um, But your skills extend beyond gymnastics and karate and music. I mean, Phineas, you are a four town member in Turning Red, (laughs) um, which is like maybe my favorite Pixar movie. And then you also were in Fallout 4, which is a game I played a distressing number of times. You are really up on this. You're really up on the back on the lore. Oh, I know the lore. Exactly. And then Billy, 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 you are up for an indie spirit for your work in Swarm. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like, is acting something that you both kind of want to get more into? For sure. Um, Phineas is such a good actor and I think could do the the most killer job of something really amazing. Um, and I love acting and we, we, we both have always loved acting. It's just like, I don't know, I was always embarrassed, but like, I, you gotta love it. Like, oh, it's, it's awesome. It's silly, but it's awesome. And it's harsh. Like, it's, it's, t- it's hard. But um, yeah, I would love to, I would love to act more. Um, and, and, you know, in the right thing, I don't know, that'd be a, a, an honor. And then, you know, speaking of the, the indie spirits, your love of Andrew Scott, especially his performance as Moriarty is very well documented. We love him here too. And now, I mean, you're both nominated in acting categories at that awards show. Like how cool is that? And how does that feel? It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It, it, it's just like, it's like a silly, like, why am I nominated also? <laughs> um, Andrew is 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 truly the the best the best to ever do it. I love him so much. I'm so excited to see him. I love him. Also, you know, Fleabag is like one of the greatest shows ever created, and he is unbelievable in that show. And I was so I felt so awesome when everybody was like, "You, you ever heard of Andrew Scott? I I found him in this new show, Fleabag, and I remember being like, "Y'all, we knew, we knew Andrew." <laughs> So um, I love him so much, so much. I've I've really been in love with him since I was like 10. So No, me too. Like the amount of times I've typed in um, like Moriarty pool scene, BBC Sherlock into YouTube is... No, bro, I have that shit memorized. I literally, I held all my friends hostage the other day at like three in the morning and forced them to watch that entire scene. And then the rooftop scene. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Phineas, you're a fan too. Come on, get in here, get in here. I put Billy on to Sherlock. He did. (gasps) I love Sherlock. Um, yeah, he's so great in it. That was like the first thing I'd ever seen Benedict Cumberbatch in. So much fun. Oh, so we can we can move into what we are actually here to talk about, which is Barbie. I just had to get the Andrew Scott stuff out of the way since we all love him. Um, so we'll move. We'll move from that acting world to the directing world. I mean, 
Billy, you directed the hell out of the music video for What Was I Made For. That is so cool. So I'm wondering, like, did the great Greta Gerwig pass on any directing or filmmaking tips? And and this goes for both of you, because I, I feel Phineas has some filmmaking in him as well. For sure. Um, Greta wasn't really involved in that, but but I was channeling her, you know? I was um I was thinking what WW G D, what would Greta do? That was that was definitely playing in my head. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to like be channeling her as much as possible and like doing what I think she would think is cool. Um but that was a really fun one. That was like one of my favorite videos I've made. I feel I felt like it was executed exactly how I wanted it to be. I think that that's what's hard about directing is that it's hard to like, especially, you know, when you're new, which I was and still am, but I'm getting less and less new the longer I do it. Yes, but um, we love it. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's hard to to make the thing that feels right. It's hard to like get it right because you don't really know what you're doing. So um, I've been learning and I've been like, uh, you know, watching other people and, and and seeing how other people work and like trying to learn people's tricks and learn the secrets. And it's been amazing. That was such a fun process. I, I can't wait to direct more. I've, I mean, I've done, I've done a lot. I've done like all of my videos, but like everything in the future I'm excited for. Phineas? Yeah, I have no interest in directing. Uh, really? It looks super hard. Yeah, yeah. I love performing and I love writing. I would write I would write any variant of anything. I'd write a show or a movie or a play or a musical or like I love to write and I love to perform. Um but yeah, directing is not um I feel the same way like my girlfriend and Billy actually are both like incredible visual artists. They can sit and draw on a little notebook like a beautiful image and that's that's also lost on me. Um Finney's used to draw all the time. Literally. I'm not trying to disparage myself, but I think really like I have a great appreciation for directing directors. Like I love it, but it, but it is not, it is not the thing that calls to me the way that writing does or performing does. So anytime Billy directs anything, I will participate, but I definitely am not ever going to be like, what about me? When can I direct? I don't want to, I don't want to direct. I, I also, it seems, it seems very, very, very hard to me. And I'm also more drawn to the, to the writing aspect, but um, so we've we've dipped our toes into Barbie land. Now we can fully dive in. So, you know, we've we've read and heard and loved the story about how you created what was I made for, but we kind of want to go a little bit behind the curtain to learn about the craft itself. So I want to talk about um more of your recording process and the the ad-libbing aspect of that song. So yeah, I mean, in in songwriting and song recording and making, um something that I I I've talked about this a little bit, but but nobody really asks about it and I find that frustrating. I think that I think that something I find frustrating in life and in this world is that you know, everybody wants to know about the songs, but they don't really want to know about the song. They want to know about kind of like how it came to be and like what was the inspiration and like where were you when you wrote it? But I love talking about the actual making of it and the moments of making it and the lyrics and the you know, recording process and the producing and the editing and the, you know, comping vocals. Like that is the stuff that we spend all our time doing. It's not, you know, you only, you only spend a little amount of time getting inspired and then you do it. <laughs> like you're inspired and then you do it. So like, let's talk about doing it. Um, yeah, the, the ad-libbing backing vocal thing. Um, 
you know, vocals is my, is, is my thing. I love, I, I, I sing and that's the thing I like doing. Um, you know, I, I singing is the, the reason I do any of this. I, I love singing more than anything. I don't, I'm not, I don't love writing to be honest. I find it really, um, hard and I don't find it, uh, I find it very frustrating and I find it hard and tedious and I love having written stuff. I love you know, having songs and I love feeling like good about something I wrote, but I don't like the, the process of it, but I sure love to sing and I love working on music and I love working on music with Phineas. And part of that is doing a lot of, a lot of vocals and a lot of backing vocals and ad libs and harmonies and layering. And, um, that's the stuff that I spend the most of my, like most of my time on and nobody ever really asks about it, which is so interesting to me. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Adlibs are are the thing that is uh, one of my favorite things in music. I mean, some some of my favorite songs like wouldn't be my favorite songs if it weren't for the adlibs and the the harmonies and the backing vocals and the melodies. And um, yeah, I think what was I made for? As with our other songs, is heavy on the the BVs, and you know sometimes you have to like really listen closely to to hear them. Um, and I think that's really special. And um, I don't know. I feel that's like my favorite part of making music is, is I go like ad lib time and I sit there and I like make stuff up and I, you know, pick the stuff that's really good and turn delete the stuff that's bad. And I don't know, it's a very satisfying process for me. And um, I mean, that ties into my next question, which is for Phineas, which is about all the little secrets that you may have hidden into the production of the song that may not be super apparent on first listen or first watch of the film. So what is one of your favorite little, I guess, Easter eggs that you snuck into? What was I made for? Uh, great question. I think my two favorites on this song specifically are there's this little synth that's a little like arpeggiator. Uh, and it's a little kind of synth that sounds a little like a video game from like the 90s or the early 2000s. And it's going near the, um, I want to say like right into the second chorus. Um, and the I try to be very sort of philosophical about why something is there. And to me, the reason that I put that in the song in the first place and the reason I put it there was I liked this idea of, uh, of something that felt like a toy or an arcade game or... Um, something electronic because obviously the core of the song is Billy's voice, which is organic and a piano, which is sitting in the room and is acoustic. So I like this kind of hyper electronic artificial. I really wanted it to sound artificial in this one part to kind of lend itself to the idea of this being um, going from like fake to real. Uh, so that's probably one of them. I think the other one uh, is that at one point I just went, woo, and then I verbed it out. And, uh, and it is way in the background, but she says, taking a drive and you hear this kind of like echo of a thing. And it's just me going, woo. And that was fun. Woo. <laughs> that is fun. Billy, we kind of talked a little bit about lyrics and, um, I know, I know you were saying that you find writing very, very hard, but the lyrics in this song are so, so incredible. I am, I am personally a major lyrics appreciator. And the line that really resonated with me was the, uh, when did it end all the enjoyment? I'm sad again. Don't tell my boyfriend. Um, I mean, that just encapsulates it, you know? So is there a song or a film for you two that gives you the sense of emotional validation that this song has given so many disillusioned people? Boy, I mean, yeah, so many. Um, I mean, honestly, like watching Barbie, I felt that way. I felt, 
like, oh, wow, this is so, I feel this, you know, you don't, you don't go into watching a movie about a doll and think I'm going to really relate to this. I'm going to like really feel like, like I'm her at all. Um, and I think that everyone was pleasantly surprised that we all could relate to Barbie and this movie about this, like, you know, feeling of not knowing what the hell we're doing here and like what, you know, what the future brings or is going to bring and um, feeling like, you know, we don't know why, what our purpose is. And I think we've all felt that always or not always, but all of us have felt that at a time in our lives. Um, God, a song that makes me feel like that. I mean, you know, that's what music is for. I think that's, that's why we love music so much is how it makes you feel uh, seen and heard and like, they wrote it for you. I mean, the amount of songs that I've listened to and been like, wow, it's as if, it's as if I had this song commissioned, you know, for me to, to someone was writing about my life and here it is. Um, Phineas, do you have one off the top of your head while I think? Uh, growing up, there was a period of time where I felt that way about a song called The Best of You by the Foo Fighters. It's a really beautiful song. The last two years, there's a movie called Cha-Cha Real Smooth by a filmmaker named Cooper Rafe. So good. Um, and that that character, and actually his other film, Shithouse, the, he has a relationship with his mom in those two movies, like a closeness with his mom that I found really beautiful and touching. And, and it was not dissimilar to like Billy and my closeness with our mom. Um, and I felt kind of validated by that. You know, we used to listen to the Beatles and like, Phineas and I have always talked about how when we were kids, we would listen to the Beatles and have like a horrible stomach ache, <laughs> like just like just filled with anxiety and guilt and, philo- you know, philosophical, whatever the fuck that the Beatles somehow like get you in this like place, even as a child where you're like, oh, my God, like the world and like, you know, existing and like love. And, um, you know, I remember I remember listening to like help and being just horribly sick to my stomach. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if this is, if this correlates to you, Billy, but like I, my better answer than that Foo Fighters song, not that I don't love that song, but I think more like globally in my life has been Imogen Heap. I think hide and seek oh. growing up used to just oh, like make me speeding cars, speeding cars for me. Was yeah. A, I literally like, was going to say that about, about, for you, Billy was that song. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. I remember hearing that song and being like, oh my God, did I write this in my own head? And then Imogen Heap actually wrote it. Like I used to, I remember singing that song all the time thinking that. Same with, um, like I loved, uh, like Not About Angels. I thought that was like the best song in the world. I loved Bad Religion. I remember learning Bad Religion on the piano and I would just sing that on over and over and over and over and over and just unrequited love to me it's nothing but a one man call oh god that song get me i mean it's so much so much music we phineas and i are you know if if there's one thing that we are it's music fans and lovers and listeners and you know we could talk about music forever and ever and ever we used to have we billy let me be on the first season of her she did like a radio show on apple music and we did the first season together and then she did the second season with our dad and i I say this with no authority, but like, it's time to do another one. Billy and I are so invested in other people's music that, you know, the putting together music that we like playing it is too much fun. When we have time again, we'll make another one. (laughs) 
We love sharing our love of art. So for my very final question, because we're tragically running out of time. Um, so because your song is so both devastating, but also very hopeful, um, which scene or moment from Barbie moved you the most and which made you laugh the most? My answers are the bus stop scene and then Gosling's sublime. <laughs> um, yeah, the bus stop scene had me in tears for sure. I think that almost even maybe more than the montage scene, except then once the song was also in the montage scene, I was like bawling my eyes out. But um, yeah, I think I think the bus stop scene used to, or really got me the first time we saw it. And then especially when we saw it for real, because my voice is in the background of that one, which is amazing. Um, yeah, that one, that one had me, had me crying. Also, you know, America's speech really was amazing. And then the funniest, the hardest I laughed, Phineas and I really thought Ryan's <laughs> laugh was so <laughs> like the first time we saw that it was like oh wow that's a really good one I thought that was I thought that was really funny the most recent time I saw it when when Barbie Margot is just crying and saying I don't feel pretty I don't feel like special uh that's devastating um and then I was really cracked up by that whole by Ryan's Ken thinking that Century City is like the greatest place on earth. And how do I make Barbie land more like Century City? And we're LA people. So we know that it's not what we should be doing. Mia, I'm, I'm, I'm sent. Are you, I feel like we're kindred spirits. Are you a LA person? I'm being interviewed. This is exciting. Um, so I, I am a SoCal girl. My mom is from here, yeah. but I was raised in Portland. And then, so I spent oh, 20 cool. years in Portland. And then I was like, I have to get back to Los Angeles. It is where I belong. I mean, listen, Portland is like more LA than LA is in some ways from a kind of a cultural, like you guys, you guys in Portland really know what's up. As always, we finish off this episode with a dip into our letterbox diaries for a glimpse into awards season's past. We leave two kindred spirits and bring back two more. Brian and Ella, it is time for winner, winner, chicken, run, dinner. <gasps> woo, woo, woo. Ella, since you are our esteemed guest, would you like to start it off, actually? I would love to. Thank you so much. So I recently watched for the first time The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, winner of the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. It was nominated for multiple BAFTAs, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Soundtrack, and it also won BAFTAs for Best Screenplay for Louis Bunuel, who also directed the film. And he shared that screenplay BAFTA alongside Jean-Claude Carrière. And also, it won the BAFTA for Best Actress for Stéphane Audran, a double notice for her because she won for this and Just Before Nightfall. I'll be frank, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is in my diary because the second that it was mentioned in the ultra-viral Poor Things cast and crew for faves as Yorgos Lanthimos' first pick, I was just like, sure, you know? Um, and shout out to The Garden Cinema, which is a really nice cinema in London, just off Covent Garden, who completely coincidentally definitely didn't program uh, Poor Things theatrical season. But they, you know, they they had a, a Bunuel season on throughout January. So um, myself and Tom went to see it because we just, yeah, we hadn't seen it before. Uh, I didn't know much about it. It's very fun. I will say it was also like, it was a very, you know, a very dark and cold night in January and the screen was full and sold out. And I think like Tom and I definitely didn't expect it. And I don't know why we had... 
we had little faith in the London cinephile audience. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. I thought it was very fun. Um, I enjoyed going through lots of different letterbox reviews of folks who were just like, it's too absurd to be funny and like, it's deadpan, but it's not good. And I just feel like it's one of those films that you can view this sort of absurd, deadpan sense of humor either way you want. For me, I was like, I don't get it and I, and I love it. I'm kind of like, it's so silly to me that I'm happy for it to just wash over me in a way. And I I know there's great intellectual depth and I believe it, but I don't need to understand it was my takeaway from it. I also can completely understand how this is like an influential film for Yorgos Lanthimos, for sure. I haven't seen it in, in, in decades, but like from my from my memory alone, it's like, of course, this would be his first mention. Oh, it, yeah, it fully checks out. And I think... I mean, this isn't, I'm not really worried about Poor Things at the Oscars in any way. And obviously Poor Things has done so wonderfully throughout award season. But I do think that something like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, if I was to make like crazy predictions on if it was released nowadays, I think that it would like kill with all the different critic circle awards like around the world, like as much London as Boston, Toronto, LA, wherever you want them. But I feel like it would be the kind of thing that would pick up loads of awards, and then by the time it would get to like my parents' local cinema, they'd be like, Ella, what have you done? What is this? We hate this. That's the sort of vibe I get if it was released during award season today. It would cause much excitement. I experienced much excite when I watched my Winner Winner Chicken Run Dinner movie. Here we go. Here's the reveal. In the Loop, 2009, directed by Armando Iannucci. So this is very much keeping in with the BAFTA the BAFTA theme for this episode. So In the Loop was a BAFTA and Oscar nominee for Best Adapted Screenplay, and it was a Biffa winning screenplay. Woohoo, go Biffas. Shout out Biffa. Shout out Biffas. Tom Hollander was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor. uh, As you all know, I am badly addicted to the massive talent of character actor Tom Hollander. Not Holland, everybody. His name is Tom Hollander, and he was here First, And he plays a bumbling minister who keeps saying just the stupidest stuff in public and embarrassing the English government. And then Peter Capaldi has to come in and fix it. And again, it's all directed by Armando Iannucci, who created Veep. And In the Loop is co-written by Jesse Armstrong, who created Succession. I miss Succession so much. And this film honestly felt like microdosing it. Like Tom Hollander is giving Tom Wamsgans and his lackey is giving Greg. Like I cannot recommend this enough for the suckheads out there who are also suffering withdrawals. And for um for people who think it's funny that uh Barbie is in best adapted screenplay, uh, I think the, the, the it's it's worth noting in the loop is fantastic. It's one of the best political satires of of our lifetimes but the reason why it's in best adapted right. screenplay is because peter capaldi appears ella you're gonna have to help me out because i'm going off the cuff it's just like one character that he played on british television that appears in this movie therefore it's adapted but what was it the thick of it yeah that's tom right. hollander appears in that show but in a different role like he's not playing the minister so it's both like the same universe and a different universe it's interesting i love the tom hollander television universe thank you uh, so BAFTA's in the books, the Film Independent Spirit Awards is this weekend. I'm kind of just like constantly previewing things on this side of the pond in case you haven't heard. So, so bear with me on this segue. I'm going to combine, uh, the BAFTA's with the UK Spirit 
it with the UK indie spirit, I checked into A Room for Romeo Brass, which was nominated for the equivalent of the, the British equivalent of the Indie Spirit Awards, three British Independent Film Awards BIFAs back in 1999. Uh, those were for Best Film, Best Director Shane Meadows, and Best Screenplay Shane Meadows. Uh, now, Shane Meadows is a heavy in the British film industry. Through various carpets uh, that Ella was on, we put together a supercut of some folks uh, that she asked their favorite British or Irish film. And many, many, many people were listing different Shane Meadows films. Romeo Brass was mentioned by Inva Lewis of How to Have Sex. But there are also mentions of This is England. First film credit for Patty Considine. Uh, Patty does not play Romeo Brass because Romeo is a child. It's uh, two young boys who are besties and Patty is an adult who rescues them from a fight, gives them a ride home, and then decides that Romeo's older sister should date him. Uh, A Room for Romeo Brass, it starts really cute and wholesome with a bit of edge and there's a ridiculous scene of Patty being duped into wearing the worst outfit you've ever seen in your life. I don't know, Ella, have you seen this? It is the worst outfit I've ever seen in film. I haven't. I need to see uh, it. (laughs) Because the boys convince him that a visor and a mismatched tracksuit is his sister's preference, uh, which is... uh, (laughs) It's very British. Yeah, that checks out. out. Um, But from that moment on, it is terrifying. Uh, We talk a lot about toxic masculinity now but shane and patty go there uh 1999 um britain of course has a history of this with the angry young man cinema movement in the late 60s but this one felt ahead of its time to me and how critical it was of him because i feel like the angry young man stuff was kind of it wasn't on the side of the angry young men but it understood them uh this one it's very very good but it's very unpleasant um and if you have seen it, I just like, since we're shouting out Brit- British things, I just got to say that Mark Cunliffe is one of the best Brit follows on Letterboxd. And he wrote, wrote a great review of a Room, for Romeo ba- a Room for Romeo Brass, which dissects the the ending, which uh, is a very, very unique ending for, for, what it's, what, for what it's doing. And you should read that if you've seen it. And you should see it. Shout out to Mark. Shout out to Tom Hollander. <laughs> Ella, let's end this with you shouting out someone. Shout out to Tom Denson, who filmed at the BAFTAs. We love our Toms and Whamsgans. <laughs> Tom Always Hollander, shout Tom out Denson, to him. Tom Whamsgans. <laughs> Every episode. <laughs> Brian, give us one more Tom. You've got to have a Tom oh in you. Oh, God. The first thing I thought of was Tom Cruise. That's for Slim. <laughs> isn't, isn't Margot Robbie's producing partner and husband called Tom? Tom Ackerley. Tom Ackerley. Yeah. Shout out him, producer of Barbie. Like, tiny side note, is it a British thing that everyone in the world is called Tom? Because two of Tom Denson's best friends are called Tom. Like, I know so many Toms. I could name you 15 Toms right now. And nobody wants me to do that, but I could. Okay, everybody. Goodbye, goodbye. Shout out Tom Hollander, Tom Holland, Tom Holland, Tom Denson, and Tom Whamscans. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening to Best in Show. We would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the word as we get closer to the Indie Spirit Awards and the Oscars. Follow us and our Awards HQ on Letterboxd using the link in our episode notes. And drop us mailbag questions to podcast at letterboxd.com. If you have any Oscars questions, please, please send them our way. Thank you to our crew, Slim for the edits, Sophie for production, Trent Walton for the music, George Fennec for newslettering, 
Danny House for the art, the entire Letterbox content team for all the extra good stuff, and Brian for overall superstar producing genius. Thank you, Ella, for superstar running London and all the Toms out there. Shout outs to every Tom. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Best in show is a Tom production. No, it's a tape deck production. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast.